English Core Course Hornbill Class 11 Chapter Number 2 We are not afraid to die if we can all be together by Gordon Cook and Alan East In July 1976 my wife Mary son Jonathan daughter Suzanne and I set sail from Plymouth England to duplicate the round the world voyage made 200 years earlier by Captain James Cook For the longest time Mary and I a 37 year old businessman had dreamed of sailing in the wake of famous explorer and for the past 16 years we had spent all our leisure time honing our seafaring skills in british waters our boat waywalker a 23 meter 30 ton wooden hull beauty had been professionally built and we had spent months fitting it out and testing it in the roughest weather we could find the first leg of our planned 3 year 1 lakh 50000 km journey passed pleasantly as we sailed down the west coast of the africa to cape town there before heading east we took on two crewmen american larry visual and swiss herb sigler to help us tackle one of the world's roughest seas the southern indian ocean on our second day out of cape town we began to encounter strong gales for the next few weeks the blue continuously gales did not worry me but the size of the waves was alarming up to 15 meters as high as our mainmast December 25 found us 3500 kilometers east of Cape Town. Despite atrocious weather, we had a wonderful holiday complete with a Christmas tree. New Year's Day saw no improvement in the weather, but we reasoned that it had to change soon and it did change for the worse. At dawn on January 2, the waves were gigantic. We were sailing with only a small storm jib and were still making 8 knots. As the ship rose to the top of each wave, we could see endless enormous seas rolling towards us. And the screaming of the wind and the spray was painful to the ears. To slow the boat down, we dropped the storm jib and lashed a heavy mooring rope in a loop across the stern. Then we double lashed everything went through our life trap. drill attached lifelines dunned oil skins and life jackets and waited the first indication of impending disaster came at about 6 pm with an ominous silence the wind dropped and the sky immediately grew dark then came a growing roar and in a moss cloud towered up of the ship with horror i realized that it was not a cloud but a wave like no that i had ever seen it appeared perfectly vertical and almost twice the height of the other waves with frightful breaking crest the roar increased to a thunder as the stern moved up the face of the wave 
and for a moment I thought we might ride over it. But then a tremendous explosion shook the deck. A torrent of green and white water broke over the ship. My head smashed into the wheel and I was aware of flying overboard and sinking below the waves. I accepted my approaching death and as I was losing consciousness, I felt quite peaceful. Unexpectedly, my head popped out of the water. A few meters away, Wave Walker was near capsizing her mast almost horizontal. Then a wave hurled her upright. My lifeline jerked out. I grabbed the guardrails and sailed through the air into the wave walker's main boom. Subsequent waves tossed me around the deck like a rag doll. My left ribs cracked, my mouth filled with blood and broken teeth. Somehow, I found the wheel lined up the stern for the next wave and hung on. Water, water everywhere. I could feel that the ship had water below, but I dared not abandon the wheel to investigate. Suddenly, the front hatch was thrown open and Mary appeared. We are sinking, she screamed. The decks are smashed, we are full of water. Take the wheel, I shouted as I scrambled for the hatch. Larry and her were pumping like madmen. Broken timbers hung at crazy angles. The whole starboard side bulged inwards. Clothes, crockery, charts, tents, and toys sloshed about in deep water. I half swam, half crawled into the children's cabin. Are you alright? I asked. Yes, they answered from an upper bunk. But my head hurts a beat, said Sue, pointing to big bump above her eyes. I had no time to worry about bumped heads. After finding a hammer, screws, and canvas, I struggled back on deck. With the starboard side bashed open, we were taking water with each wave that broke over us. If I couldn't make some repairs, we would surely sink. Somehow I managed to stretch canvas and secure waterproof hatch covers across the gaping holes. Some water continued to stream below, but most of it was now being deflected over the side. More problems arose when our hand pumps started to block up with debris floating around the cabins and the electric pump short-circuited. The water level rose threateningly. Back on deck, I found that our two spare hand pumps had been wrenched overboard, along with the foresail, jail, and the jib, and the dinghies and the main anchor. Then I remember we had another electric pump under the chat room floor. I connected it to an odd pipe and was tangled to find it that it worked. The night dragged on with an endless, bitterly cold routine of pumping, steering and working the radio. We were getting no replies to our mayday calls, which was not surprising in this remote corner of the world. Sue's head had swollen alarmingly. She had two enormous black eyes, now she showed us a deep cut on her arm, and I asked why she hadn't made more of her injuries before this. She replied, I didn't want to worry you when you were trying to save us all. By morning on January 3, the pumps had the water level sufficiently under control for us to take two hours rest in rotation. 
but we still had a tremendous leak somewhere below the water line and on checking I found that nearly all the boat's main rib frames were smashed down to the keel. In fact there was nothing holding up a whole section of the starboard hull except a few cupboard partitions. We had survived for 15 hours since the wave hit, but wave walker wouldn't hold together long enough for us to reach Australia. I checked our chats and calculated that there were two small islands a few hundred kilometers to the east. One of them, Ile Amsterdam, was a French scientific base. Our only hope was to reach these pinpricks in the vast ocean. But unless the wind and seas abated so we could hoist sail, our chances would be slim indeed. The great wave had put our auxiliary engine out of action. On January 4, after 36 hours of continuous pumping, we reached the last few centimeters of water. Now we had only to keep pace with the water still coming in. We could not set any sail on the main mast. Pressure on the rigging would simply pull the damaged section of the hull apart. So we hoisted the storm jib and headed for where I thought the two islands were. Mary found some corned beef and cracked biscuits and we ate our first meal in almost two days. But our respite was short-lived. At 4 p.m. black clouds began building up behind us. Within the hour the wind was back at 40 knots and the seas were getting higher. The weather continued to deteriorate throughout the night and by dawn on January 5, our situation was again desperate. When I went in to comfort the children, John asked, Daddy, are we going to die? I tried to assure him that we could make it, but Daddy, he went on, we aren't afraid of dying if we can all be together, you, Mummy, Sue and I. I could find no words with which to respond but I left the children's cabin determined to fight the sea with everything I had. To protect the weak in the starboard side, I decided to heave to. With that undamaged boat hull facing the oncoming waves, using an improvised sea anchor of heavy nylon rope and two 22-liter plastic barrels of paraffin, that evening Mary and I sat together holding hands. As the motion of the ship brought more and more water in through the broken planks, we both felt the end was very near. A wave walker rode out the storm and by the morning of January 6, with the wind easing, I tried to get a reading on the sextant. Back in the chat room, I worked on Venus speeds. Changes, of course, drift and current in an effort to calculate our position. The best I could determine was that we were somewhere in 15 lakh kilometers of oceans looking for 65 kilometer wide island. While I was thinking, Sue moving painfully joined me. The left side of her head was now very swollen and her blackened eyes narrowed to slits. She gave me a card she had made. On the front she had drawn 
caricatures of Mary and me with the words. Here are some funny people. Did they make you laugh? I laugh a lot as well. So it was a message. Oh, how I love you both. So this card is to say thank you and let's hope for the best. Somehow we had to make it. I checked and rechecked my calculations. We had lost our main compass and I was using a spare which had not been corrected for magnetic variation. I made an allowance for this and another estimate of the influence of the westerly currents which flow through this part of the Indian Ocean. About 2 pm I went on deck and asked Larry to steer a course of 185 degrees. If we were lucky, I told him with a conviction I did not feel. He could expect me to see the island at about 5 pm. Then with a heavy heart I went below, climbed on my bunk and I was nearly dozed off. When I woke it was 6 pm and growing dark, I knew we must have missed the island and with the sail we had left we couldn't hope to beat back into the westerly winds. At that moment a dozzle had appeared by my bunk. Can I have a hug? Jonathan asked. She was right behind him. Why am I getting a hug now? I asked. Because you are the best daddy in the whole world and the best captain, my son replied. Not today, John, I am afraid. Why you must be, said Sue in a matter of fact voice. You found the island. What? I shouted. It's out there in front of us, the chorus, as big as a battleship. I rushed on deck and gazed with relief at the stark outline of El Amsterdam. It was only a bleak piece of volcanic rock with little vegetation. The most beautiful island in the world. We anchored offshore for the night and the next morning all 28 inhabitants of the island cheered as they helped us ashore. With land under my feet again, my thoughts were full of Larry and Herbie cheerful and optimistic under the direst streets and of Mary who stayed at the wheel for all those crucial hours. Most of all, I thought of seven-year-old girl who did not want us to worry about a head injury which subsequently took six minor operations to remove a recurring blood clot between skin and skull and of a six-year-old boy who was not afraid to die.